Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 74. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionFanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Fooleman, we are on the eve, not the eve of the regular season, but this is our last podcast before the regular season. And since the world revolves around our podcast, I guess we are on the eve of the regular season. How are you feeling? <laughs> Uh, generally pretty good about the team. I mean, it's hard to take, you know, vast inferences from how the team has looked against, frankly, facsimiles of bad NHL teams, basically. You know, we haven't exactly been playing a murderer's row, even putting aside yeah. that it's preseason. But, you know, they've played well. Um, and yeah, we they, are going to talk about have... that, but yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> it does feel like we, we should probably... Yeah. Yeah, the thing we should discuss first, because this dominated the news cycle uh, in the past week, and we'd be doing a disservice to not discuss it, is um, the Austin Matthews legal situation. So I'm sure most people listening to this already know we won't spend too much time on this. But basically, um, it came out this week that Matthews was charged for essentially some sort of disorderly conduct at some time uh, during the summer in Scottsdale, right? And at first, everyone seemed to assume that, okay, he probably just got drunk and got into a, a bar fight or something. But then it came out, uh, then what it actually was came out. And, and what it actually came out was a little, I wouldn't say necessarily more concerning as if we're going to rank transgressions here, but it, w- it was concerning. Do you want to kind of discuss Foodman? Because you, you wrote a very nice article on this. Sure. So the substance of the complaint, and right now what we have is a police report, so it's based on the interview that the person complaining gave to police. So it's worth saying we don't know, none of this has been tested in court, it's allegations right now, police reports are not gospel. At the same time, they're not nothing. Someone took this seriously enough to go to the police. And so the substance of it was that one night in May, Matthews and his friends, allegedly, were quite drunk, and they decided to bother uh, a woman who was a security guard at the condo complex where Austin Matthews lived. Uh, We don't know if he knew who she was, if he recognized her or not, or what he was thinking. But he went and kind of jiggled at the car handle door, again, this is her account, trying to get access to the vehicle, it seemed like, and she was apparently quite startled and then stepped out in front of them. She said, you know, it's not funny when a bunch of drunk guys uh, try to get into a woman's car at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is when this apparently happened. And so apparently Matthews was quite intoxicated, and as he stepped away, he sort of did something like a mooning gesture. He lowered his pants enough to expose his boxers, which has led to a lot of, you know, kind of cheap Captain Underpants jokes from other fan bases. That's not really the point here. The thing is, is that I think there's been a lot of discussion and it's it's really gone through a whole cycle since this came out in the middle of last week saying, oh, well, you know, uh, lots of people get drunk and do stupid things at age 21, but that's not really all there is to it here. The point is that you have a group of, you know, presumably young men who are quite drunk. It's the dead of night. This is a woman who's alone in her car, and they're trying to get into the car. Matthews apparently said, I thought it would be funny. This is her account of what he said um, when she asked him what he was doing. 
But it's kind of not so funny for her, obviously, because she can't know what their intentions are. Uh, they could be pretty bad. They could be violent. They could be uh, very negative in a lot of ways. And so it's obviously a lot harder for her to not take that as a joke, um, to take that as a joke. So it's, it's not great, frankly, to make a woman feel that way. And it is, you know, pretty you know, worrisome and bothersome to think that the supposed face of our franchise would do that. I, I do say I, I think that it's probably worse than like a stand-up bar fight, which is, you know, not something to pin a medal on, but I, I put it in a different category, personally. And so that's where we're at. Again, none of that has been tested in court, so I don't know if it's wholly accurate, if it's not accurate, what it is in between, if the details are right or whatever. There's apparently security footage at the condo that shows a man with his pants around his ankles. That's all it apparently shows, but that would be a little suggestive, obviously, if the person is Matthew, since that would be consistent with what was said. Look, I don't think that there's a way to talk about this and to not say it's disappointing. It's disappointing right. to think that you know, that he would behave this way if, if this is what happened. And it did, you know, it struck at a lot of fears that I think a lot of women experience in terms of these threatening situations where, especially if you're a young man, you don't really think at all of how frightening it can be to a young woman or worse if they did. Uh, they were playing on that fear. They were startling her because they thought it would be funny to kind of frighten her for a bit. It doesn't, you know, bring it to the level of like a violent crime or anything like that. You know, he's not alleged to have touched anybody or anything like that. But it is disappointing. And there were a lot of women talking online in the aftermath of this about how the fear of what men might do or what their intentions might be... Uh, forces them to live their lives differently than they would otherwise, especially in circumstances like this. And I would say it's really worth paying attention to that, especially if, you know, you are a young man and you don't maybe think about this stuff. I, I'll be honest, when I was about 18, uh, I had a, a female friend kind of tell me a few of these things, and it was just something that I hadn't really had to think about very much at all in my life because you know you're uh, kind of young and you're convinced you're invincible and all this sort of stuff but it doesn't it doesn't come to your to your head in the same way exactly how frightening these situations can be for people and how how worrisome and i think that's something that we really need to try to take more account of and that i hope matthews again if this is the case does take more account of i hope that he does right. improve and this is what it is yeah yeah absolutely and i mean the kind of phenomenon you mentioned of not being aware of this sort of thing being able to live your life unaware of this that's that's the definition of male privilege mm -hmm. right so it's important that we recognize that yeah. and also you know uh, we as in fulham and i also have to be cognizant of the fact that we're, we're not the people most qualified to discuss this sort of thing uh being two mm -hmm. men who who haven't had to deal with these issues but what we can do is listen to the people who have had these issues and who have said like, Hey, this is, this is not cool because of, you know, a lot of 
because of the way society works. It, 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 it is fundamentally different um, to doing this to a woman as opposed to doing it with a guy. And that's not to say it'd be fine if it was a guy. It still wouldn't be. If I was in a car alone at 2 a.m. and a bunch of big drunk guys tried to get into my car, I'd be frightened too. But mm-hmm. it, it's also qualitatively different uh, when it's done to a woman because of, you know, basically the way society works and, and, and mm-hmm. the inherent kind of danger that exists for you if you are a woman. So, yeah, it, it's very disappointing from Matthew's perspective um, that he would do this. And then what was also, I thought, disappointing was the fact that he didn't inform the team, um, nor did his family. So there there was a bunch of stuff that came out later. And again, we're not... This is this is all from body cam interviews of the... Um, of the, com- the person who made the complaint, uh, body cam police interviews. So she said that, you know, he, uh, they tried to contact uh, his dad and his dad basically didn't believe her. And that's kind of what led her to go to the police um, because basically the Ma- neither Matthews nor his family were really taking responsibility for this. And I think mm-hmm. that is a particularly disappointing um, outcome where, Look, we're not we're not saying Matthews is a scumbag and a criminal, and we don't want him on this team. It, it, it it's a disappointing action. It's a stupid mistake that he made. But part of being an adult and part of being a good human being is being able to own up to your mistakes and accept the consequences that come with them. And he hasn't really done that here. Part of the consequences is you kind of need to have, if you're the face of a billion dollar organization, you kind of need to have an uncomfortable conversation with your employers because you are in the entertainment business right and there's another kind of austin matthews is not like you or me when we were 22 right mm-hmm. we we lived in relative anonymity at that age if we did something stupid we had the pleasure or the, the privilege rather of it not being headline news and yes that's a tough expectation for matthews to live up to he is he's held to a higher standard than us but that's because he is again the face of a billion dollar entertainment product Right, mm-hmm. and you get you get the, the the privileges of that, which is an eleven million dollar contract, you know, and then you also get the downsides of that, which is every single thing you do is scrutinized, and you were held up to a higher standard, and that's how it should be. So yeah, you know, Matthews and, and his team, whether he got advice from his agent to not do it, whether he told his agent or and his family, okay, let's let's keep this quiet, let's hope this goes away, whether he didn't even think about that at all it still represents a failure in judgment on his part. And um, I doubt the least were too happy with him. And it, it, it's, again, this doesn't make me think Matthews is a terrible person or that, you know, he's not someone I want on the team or he's not, he, he, I think you can be someone who makes a mistake and is still a person who others can look up to and a person who lives their life with integrity and respect and that sort of thing, right? What One mistake, I don't believe defines you for the rest of your life but you do have to make amends for that mistake and you do have to show that you've moved on and that you've grown from it and learned from it and that the people you hurt with that mistake are entitled to be upset and you have to do what you can to help them right and that that's part of growing up and that's part of being an adult and part of being a good human being so matthews you know has to demonstrate that and i i I hope that he will um in terms of its effect if any of this event on the captaincy, as Kyle Dubas said, this it's not the right time to discuss it, and I, I don't think it's particularly 
relevant or appropriate to discuss what is, you know, a a fairly kind of serious life event in through the lens of how does it affect this hockey team? Because that, that isn't really that important. Yeah, it does feel secondary. Um, the only thing that I would probably also like to say is when you see a lot of the discussion around this, a lot of people, men specifically for the most part, want to jump to the defense of Austin Matthews because, you know, Austin Matthews is the star player for a franchise team. They're mostly invested in him being uh, a great player and a respected person and someone they care about. And as a result, you'll see people going every which way but loose trying to kind of blow this up one way or another. They're saying, oh, like, do you want to crucify Austin Matthews? No. You know, do you think you never did anything this stupid when you were young and, you know, reckless and all this sort of stuff? Well, you know, I, I did things that were stupid. I never tried to get into a woman's car in the dead of night. You know, it's it just... I feel like there's a really disingenuous conversation here that goes on about um, basically people trying to find different ways why it's not okay to criticize the star player. And it's both okay and important. And some of the overtones of how this was handled in terms of, you know, not telling anybody and hoping it'll go away, even though it's a pending court case. Um, I think that does kind of smack of entitlement the way that it's happened. And that part is kind of authenticated because Matthews has acknowledged he made an error in judgment by not telling the team about it. I do think we kind of have to call a spade a spade here and say, look, this wasn't good. This wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. And one final point here, and, and this is a bit of an aside, but if you want to discuss this case, um, you know, you have your own thoughts uh, about it. I mean, you're certainly entitled to that. Everyone is ultimately free to have an opinion. I would say uh, do not go in trying to hope you're going to find a way to discredit the complainant in this case, because I think that that is a tell on you and that's not a good one. But also, please do not misuse or make up legal terms. I saw a bunch of just complete nonsense out there, including specifically people misusing hearsay where they said oh the the guards complaint is all hearsay nope that's not what hearsay is or that it was all circumstantial evidence which again equivocally no it is not um i don't want to turn this into like a fulham gets annoyed about the law podcast but it is deeply frustrating to me when people on serious issues like this no less use basically a tv you know, procedural drama, understanding of how the law works to try and go after why someone isn't believable. Um, it's both very dumb and I also think it's wrong. So please just don't do that would be my parting point there. The bottom line is we'll see how this proceeds. I'm hoping that the resolution here is Austin Matthews taking some ownership. I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if this doesn't end in any kind of criminal conviction or any kind of record. It may be some sort of agreement with the prosecution, even if he's guilty. I hope he does better going forward. You know, I, like, I don't think that this is good. And I think that if this is, again, what happened, he's got to step up. So, yeah, we'll see. I, I think it's fair to say that he, he made a mistake, is it for the consequences, and he has to, you know, do what he can to make amends, right? As I said, we're not demonizing him for life for this. 
we can say he made a mistake without saying that, oh, he's a terrible person who can never be redeemed. Mm-hmm. But, you, you know, it's it's not nothing either. So, you know, he's got to yes. take ownership with the seriousness of what it is. So Yes, exactly. Part of, as I said, part of moving on from mistake mm-hmm. is taking responsibility, which he's, he's done to a degree, although I think he has to do a bit more and making sure that, taking steps to make sure it doesn't happen again. Right? And, and again, making sure that whoever you hurt is restituted as, as much as possible. Okay. So uh, we mm-hmm. didn't want to spend too long on that, um, as I think most people have kind of formed their opinions on it. It's, it's made its way out of the news cycle. So let's move on to, I guess, the more fun aspects of being a Leafs fan, and that's this Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team. So we're, we're done the preseason now. Last night was the Leafs' last preseason game. Um, as you mentioned, the Leafs have looked pretty damn good over the course of the preseason, and with the caveat that they are facing, you know, for the first, like, four games, first five games, really, they're facing partial NHL teams. Then for the last few games, they're facing, I mean, still partial NHL teams, but partial NHL teams of bad teams specifically, like the like the Wings yeah. and the um, and what's it, the Senators, and then the Can- or not the Can- the, the Canadians. So I mean, the Canadians yeah. are a good team, but it, it's certainly boy, they didn't look like. It. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really as bad. you said, we're we're not we're not facing yeah. Tampa and Boston at this point. Um, yeah, so. I guess, do you have any general thoughts on the team? Actually, we, we should actually just quickly run through what the kind of day one roster is going to be, right? So Yes, we should, and seems, we mostly know, yeah. Yes, I, I think there's maybe only one or two spots where we're not completely sure. Um, do you want to run through it, or should I? Sure, we can go off the top. Okay, so currently we have Travis Dermott out on defense and Zach Hyman out at forward. We're anticipating it'll be about a month in either case, and they will both come back, and they will both be on the team. So these lineups are in flux pending that. But for opening night, what we're looking at is Andreas Janssen, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, and then Kasperi Kapanen playing the left side with John Tavares and Mitch Marner. Those are kind of our two first lines, and they're extremely good. I don't think that there's any shock there, but they've both produced quite admirably in the preseason and they're both really good lines and then you have uh Ilya Mikhaev who is uh our most recent uh undrafted European free agent signing he's out of Russia he looks to have locked up the third line left wing spot I think he's been it's fair to say he's been impressive for what he is as a very Mike Babcock player you know very dogged determined at puck retrieval and then he's going to be left wing to Alexander Kerfoot, who I think has had, let's say, a bit of an uneven preseason at third line center. Not, you know, all bad by any means. You certainly see what Avs fans were telling us about him not shooting, because he doesn't do that very much. And then it looks like Trevor Moore will be temporarily taking right side on that third line. And then the fourth line is where we still have some things in flux, but it looks like uh, Jason Spezza and Frederick Goche are going to kind of platoon at center. Um, they're both going to appear on the line. They'll trade off on faceoffs. And as much as I think we have ragged on Goche at points in the past, he has been impressive for his standards this preseason. He does not have any finishing talent at all at the NHL level. 
But he's, other than that, looked like he is legitimately a fourth-line player now. Like, with no... He's getting a break because he's a first-round pick or anything like that. Like, I think he's earned it. And so that really just leaves one of the few remaining spots that have any mystery left to them, which is fourth-line left wing. Uh, so right now we have a couple of players contending for that. We have Nick Patan, who I think a lot of us like. He's probably the most offensively talented. Um, he played in Monday's game where we basically iced an AHL team against half of the Habs NHL team, and we shut them out. That was a lot of fun. And Nick Patan had a couple goals. But at the same time, there are rumors that Babcock is not super enamored with uh, maybe his level of drive or whether he's the kind of player that Mike Babcock wants on his fourth line. He's more of a skilled player, I think it's fair to say. And so uh, we've also had Igor Korshkov, who you may remember we took at the end of the first round um, back in 2016, and he's always going to be associated with Alex DeBrincat, who we did not take and who scored 40 goals last year. But I think it's fair to say Korshkov has been impressive, not to the point where I think he's going to make the team, because I do not expect that he will, but I think he's shown enough that he's worth really keeping an eye on this year with the Marlies, and then maybe next year that door is open. Um, if we had a bit more salary room, the door might be open sooner, but as we discussed on our previous podcast, we are so capped out right now that... <laughs> Uh, even bringing up an extra player, making as much as Korshkov is on his ELC, is a bit of an ordeal for us. So there's also Kenny Agostino, who I think has been pretty workmanlike, is how I would describe him. Uh, I don't think he's done a bad job by any means. I don't think that he's necessarily blown away the field either, but I think he's been pretty good. Um, and then we have Nick Shore, who is... Someone that I was very keen on, and who is also, you know, kind of a center. He's had good shot metrics when he's been in the NHL previously. He hasn't seemed to get the kind of consideration at fourth line left wing that maybe I thought that he might. Like, yeah, it didn't really it's, it's seem like the team thought about him weird. a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because, like... Yeah. Sorry, I just want to interject here. For, like from a stats mm-hmm. perspective, it seems kind of silly to be like, okay, we're gonna let these four games against partial NHL teams make a big determination about you know what our roster is going to be, instead of like any NHL sample that we may have previously. It, it's it's a little backwards, right? Although I get the appeal. It's like you you want to see it in the in the here and now. But Shore does have a pretty solid NHL track record. Certainly, you know, if you compare him even to Gauthier, his NHL track record kind of blows Gauthier's out of the water. Um, uh-huh. So you would think, like, okay, well, I mean, based on that, you'd, you'd hope that he gets some consideration. But, yeah, it's it's been less than I, I would have thought. I had him basically penciled in when we signed him. It's like, okay, yeah, he's definitely going to be on the fourth line, right? But it looks like he might so, not so he might be a spare or he might be in and out of the lineup or he might not make it at all. Right and, and even now, like even with Gautier's impressive reg, uh, preseason, if you put a gun to my head and say who would you rather, who who do you think helps you win hockey games more? I'd, I'd say Nick Shore. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. And now the thing is, and this is something Katya points out a lot. 
we spend a lot of time arguing about like the fourth line and the third pair and like frankly it doesn't matter that much right the, the difference between these players is so marginal but at the same time yeah. you know it, it's low-hanging fruit right like yes it's marginal but i'd rather be one percent better than one percent worse right i know it doesn't make a big difference but why make an unforced error so yeah i mean yeah, in the back that. of your head at all of these things or at least for me is always is this home ice against the boston bruins mm-hmm. and i don't know it's like you know we might finish close enough to them where it's it's a difference of one game or something but you know it may not make a huge difference and i think also especially with the fourth line it is easy to allow your biases to creep into maybe a greater extent because they're playing such a small sample you're only going to remember a couple plays a night if that from them so that if you don't like a guy he doesn't have a huge opportunity to change your mind and similarly and i think we talked about this a bit with uh go chase fancy stats last year uh the samples are going to be quite small and they may be particularly skewed especially if they're used in a lot of sort of face-off get-off situations and so you don't know 100 percent if you're getting the full picture there like i get the best argument for saying okay we got to use the preseason to help make our decision is that the preseason is when you have uh several very experienced hockey minds like mike babcock and dave haxtell and uh, paul mcfarland and whoever else uh, looking at this game close up, and I think, and this will come up with the defense, um, Mike Babcock has really been using these as auditions. Like, he played Rasmus Sandin, uh, blessed be his name, and we'll discuss him in a bit, for like 30 minutes on Friday night. He clearly was like, I want to see what this kid can do. And so, definitely this has been an audition period. Uh, Pontus Auberg, or Aberg, I've heard actually some variations on the pronunciation there, and knowing me, I'm doing the wrong one. But uh, Some, somehow it'll Pontus be some, neither of the two that you. It's neither of the <laughs> two that you said somehow. Yeah, it'll be like Smith or something, and I'll just be like, "Oh, yeah. the emphasis was on the other letters." Uh, yeah, and so he seemed like he might be a, a contender early on, although it was always a bit kind of iffy because he seems to do one thing, which is score goals. Um, at a, like a limited rate, and that's about it. And he started the preseason impressively in those kind of shamble games with very partial rosters. And he kind of fell out of the running as things have gone on. He was placed on waivers yesterday. So actually, you know, we're recording this on Sunday morning. There's a chance that he may not be in the organization by the time we publish this. But either way, it means that he's out of the running for the, the fourth line role, at least for now. So... It'll probably one of those names that, you know, we previously mentioned, be it Agostino, Patan, Shore, and then when Zach Hyman does come back and bumps everybody down, um, I suspect the follow-up process will be Trevor Moore goes to the fourth line, and whoever it is we've just been talking about, who makes that fourth line, gets bumped to the press box or the Marlies. Um, That's, I think, about the size of it. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that further. Uh, I guess maybe maybe Matt Reed could figure in there, but mm. he's on a PTO yeah, right now. He's, he's looked good. He he's looked like an NHL player in this preseason. Um, but there's also if no Matt commitment. Reed were signed, I'd say maybe it would be him. Yeah, like the thing is, there's no commitment on either end, right? So he can mm-hmm. he's also free to accept a contract from another team um, if he receives one. So until we sign him, it's hard to really pencil him in. 
anywhere. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's basically the forwards. And as we touched on before, and we'll talk about this when it comes to talking about Sandine, because it has some implications for what our roster is going to be after, uh, after Hyman and Dermot come back. Um, any of the players we just mentioned, you mentioned they might be like the spare. We might not have a forward spare, right? In mm-hmm. fact, if we keep Sandin or Sandine, it'll be difficult to. So anyways, that, let's talk about the defense. So um, at, in the post game of yesterday's game, Mike Babcock said, you know, when asked about the defense, like, okay, we have about like 10 guys. We have the first four, and which are obviously Riley, Cece, Muzz, and Barry. And then he said, then we have Sandine. Right, so Sandine is clearly the fifth guy. He's making the roster at least to start, mm-hmm. and then we got to figure out that last spot. Now, I think Babcock was mostly just saying we have to figure out that last spot to not crap on um, Justin Hall and Kevin Gravel, who had played reasonably well in this game. But I think realistically, that last spot, that sixth defenseman, is going to Martin Marinson. Yep, long may he reign. Yeah, uh, uh, he and Sandine have. Um, played together, <clears throat> they played together in a couple games, and I think that's kind of a sign that they're trying to build that pair to be something. Marinson is a solid enough third pair guy. I think they like the fact that he's versatile. He can play both left and right side. He's a left-handed shot, but he's been playing the right side with Sandine, and he's deputized uh, pretty well there. He can play mm-hmm. on the PK. He has all the little small things going for him uh, over Hall and Gravel. So it seems pretty clear that... Those are the six that are going to be suiting up in Ottawa, or against Ottawa, rather. Do you have yeah. any thoughts about that as a whole? Uh, um, I'm very pleased with it. I mean, I said a couple of weeks ago that I just did not expect Sandine to make this team. Mostly because I was thinking he would be decent and competitive, but he wouldn't like really stand out. And the Leafs would prefer to have his contract slide another year so they get an extension on the ELC if he doesn't play more than nine games that might still happen they might still send him down after nine games played but I think it is actually fair to say you know hype aside he has been one of the best Leafs defensemen this preseason he's earned this on merit he's made it impossible to keep him off the roster right now because he's been quite good and you know maybe when things tighten up as we get into the real games He'll have more difficulty. I tend to think that Mike Babcock can keep his third pair pretty well sheltered. That's one of the things that he's quite good at. So I I think he'll do okay, and we'll see what happens in nine games. But he's really been impressive, and and it's been great to see. And also, you know, I think I feel a little bad about uh, our criticisms of Ben Harper, but, like, I'm trying to separate my bias here because I know that there were some games his shot results were actually fine, but he looked awful to me all preseason. Like, there was no point (laughs) where I was thinking this guy should be. (laughs) Yeah, and and funnily enough, like, Sandine's shot results were, like, okay, right? And and here's the thing. Mm -hmm. You you certainly... You don't want to over-centralize on shot results in general. You certainly don't want to do so for, like, a handful of games, right? So... Yeah. When I say Sandine's shot results weren't amazing, I'm saying that purely as a descriptive thing without any kind of comment about what that means for his level of play. Because visually, when I watched Sandine, right. yeah, I, w- I was impressed. He he makes all sorts of these just small little plays that are just smart. They're just smart plays. Like I, I remember, I remember one play where um, 
the the Leafs were were changing, and he has the puck around the neutral zone. So the typical thing to do there is skate it up to the red line, dump it in, and then you know have your team forecheck and whatever. He doesn't do that, right? He uh, skates up to the red line, feigns a dump in, holds the puck for a little bit, and waits until he has reinforcement and he's able to keep it, and then the Leafs are able to maintain puck control, right? And it's just small things like that. I'm like, it, that's a tiny thing. That's Events like that happen tens of times during a game, but it's just, it shows the way he thinks it. It's like, okay, we have the puck. I have the confidence to hold this. We're not going to lose this puck, right? And it's just, it's a small thing that I think over time can make a big difference. So I am, you know, I I am kind of bullish on him in general. And I, I, I wrote this when I um, did my little blurb about Sandine for the top 25 under 25, where I ranked him number four. So I ranked him mm-hmm. only behind... Uh, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. And I said, like, I typically don't rank prospects this high unless they are prospects who I think can become high-level NHL players. The only other prospects I've rated above all other good NHL players the Leafs had were those big three, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander. And Sandine probably won't get to that level where he's like a top pair D, just because the odds are Whenever you're talking about any prospect, the odds are they aren't, they don't become one of the 30 best at their position or whatever. But mm-hmm. I do legitimately think he has really, really high upside. I've liked, I've liked him every time I've watched him, and I'm I'm very excited about him, and I'm I'm glad he's made the team. As you said, he has certainly made the team on merit, and I'm glad um, big safety is there with him. <laughs> yes, Sandin did also another important thing to endear him to us, which is that he called Marincin big safety, which is now what I'm calling Marincin forever for the rest of my life. Um, Just one little note about Sandin, which is, this is like an obscure comparison, but I can't get it out of my head. There was a video game that came out like a year or two back called Super Hot, and it was kind of a shooter, but the premise of it was that all the enemies that you're facing, they only move when you move. So you can take a step and just sort of look around and puzzle out how you're going to, you know, shred through four or five different enemies. And then you do it and you take that extra second where you just have time to think. Sandin looks to me almost like he somehow has that time to think. You know what I mean? Like he just seems like he's not rushed to the extent that most players are. He's able to kind of calmly and coolly find what he wants to do in the situation instead of being rushed to what he doesn't want to do. And I'm not saying he doesn't make mistakes, because of course he does. But the calm under pressure, the ability to just kind of process the game, that is his most notable trait. And even though he doesn't really have, like, those spectacular standout physical skills that you see, where, you know, you look at a guy, you're like, oh, this guy is like an A++ lateral skater or something like that. With Sandin, you're just sort of like, he just really makes a lot of good decisions. And, you know, Mike Babcock has been raving about him in Mike Babcock fashion for that reason. He's just like, he just plays like a calm veteran making good plays. Which, if Mike Babcock is saying about saying that about you at age 19, that means that he's really high on your potential. So, yeah, it's been, it's been very fun seeing how that's developed. I have to say I did not expect that he would be at this level this early so that's been maybe the most fun part of camp for me for sure yeah and i mean babcock has been just 
by his standards gushing over him right so it's it's Mm -hmm. it's been good to see um we haven't had a prospect to dream on for the last three years so it's been a hard time for us (laughs) (laughs) all of our prospects turned into star nhlers i don't know how we were supposed to survive Um, yeah yeah but uh that's been really good i i guess it's worth just talking about you know what else maybe we saw in preseason from the defense uh cody cc has been fine I don't want to get carried away. And you posted, there was like that Reddit thread where it was like, Cody CC has proved a lot of people wrong. Oh man. I don't know if I want to start saying that after like one preseason game against half the, the, con- the Montreal the, Canadiens. The complete, like the confidence you need to be like, you know what? I've seen him for two preseason games against a combined eight NHLers. I'm pretty confident that Cody CC is going to be a star. It's it's like, but I love it's like <laughs> those people like who watched role. him for the 400 NHL games he played. They're full of shit. I've seen two preseason games. Yeah. Oh my and, god. And, you know I feel oh. the same way about people who are like, oh man, this power play looks so much better than than last year's. It's like, did you see our power play last October? We couldn't stop scoring. Right? Yeah, it shot um, like a billion percent for a while there. It was nuts. And yeah. also so, like. Sorry, I'm just going to do a quick kind of digression here. I'm still not sold on this power play unit, this power play setup. Like, mm. it, the results have been good in preseason. I don't really look into that. I'm looking if they're generating quality shots, and they look like they generally are, but they were last year too, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, people are like, oh, last year was, was so predictable. And, I mean, people keep saying that, and I keep thinking, I don't see what was that predictable about it besides the fact that it ran through Marner, and it's going to run through Marner again. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, Marner himself had many options. And yes, teams certainly got better at taking away the cross-ice pass to Matthews. But there were so many times where the Leafs, or when Marner, instead of doing that, would shoot for a tip or pass to Tavares, who would center for Kadri, or pass to Tavares, who would uh, center, uh, center for Matthews, or reverse it to right. Like, the Leafs were not as one-note as people tend to say, in my opinion. And... Even if they were, like, I mentioned this, I think, either the last podcast or podcast before. If you look at basically any time frame from last season, the Leafs were first in power play expected goals for. They were generating a ton of shots from the slot and the crease. So even if teams were predicting them, they weren't stopping it. And this is, again, over any time period. Now, I'm not going to say that our power play knowledge is perfect and that the Leafs' power play couldn't be improved on, but thus far... I'm not really seeing incontrovertible evidence that our new power play is going to be much better than the old one. It might get better results. It very well could. Um, I would almost expect it to because I think the Leafs' power play last year underperformed in terms of goals versus expected goals. So even if they take a step back in expected goals, but they just kind of convert at an average rate they'll be fine. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend that expected goals completely capture um, completely capture shot quality, especially on the power play where puck movement is more of a factor and something that you can more intentionally bake into the um, shots that you're taking. Ta- uh, Alan made a good point with, with Tampa um, last podcast. But I, I'm, I'm just not 100% sold on this new power play yet. And I, I hope I'm wrong on this. I hope the new power play is just amazing. But... I don't think there's a ton of evidence as of right now that we've made a, 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 a for sure improvement on that end. 
Anyways, back to Cody CC. <laughs> yeah, so Cody CC, I, I mean, I think the best case scenario here is that Cody CC is fine. Like, I don't think that expecting him to be quite good is all that realistic, just based on all the evidence that we have. But I think he could form a fine enough pair with Morgan Riley, and his results will certainly be better than they were. And we'll say, hey, that was okay. And because, hopefully, our second pair is strong for what it is with uh, Jake Muzzin and Tyson Berry. And then I'm hoping that some combination of Sandine, Dermot, and then Marincin as maybe this pair, or depending on how the salary works out, Justin Hole could be in there, but I don't think he's going to play much. I'm hoping that we're going to have a really above-average third pair. And so we'll kind of have a no specific weak links on the defense, so to speak. Like, the only really mm -hmm. notable weak link will be CC, and the whole group will be strong enough that he'll do okay. I think that's the most we can hope for from CC, and if you're looking for that, this preseason probably made you think it's possible. Yeah, he hasn't I think been I, dazzling. He hasn't been abject. So. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's kind of hoping. Okay, maybe he. Hopefully, he's a bit better than Ron Hainsey was last year. Right, that's it. Yeah, um, you know, like so, we're not setting the bar that high here. <laughs> exactly. Um, so actually, while we're here, we should discuss kind of the cap implications of having Sandine up, right? Because things get a little bit hairy. Um, not right now, mm -hmm. but once Dermot and Hyman come off LTIR. Yes. And so we are so capped out. Uh, <laughs> that's the bottom line here. And so our um, our colleague at the site, Kevin Papetti, did uh, come up with a lineup where with Zach Hyman returned to the lineup and with uh, Travis Dermott back, it is possible to, con to construct a lineup where we have one spare and it's Justin Hall. If your fourth line is more Goje Spezza, which doesn't seem unlikely. And if you do that, you can still keep Sandine up. That whole roster, as constituted, has about $3,000. Pause. $3,000 in cap space. And so if you replace any of the guys who are making a quite low salary, like Goche makes six seventy five, dollars Justin Hall makes six seventy five, dollars Jason Spezza makes $700,000, if you replace any of those guys with anyone making any amount basically more than they already are, like, again, it's $3,000, then the, the roster doesn't work and you have to go down to 20 men, which is no injury spares. So there is another pressure in addition to the slide thing to kind of maybe keep Rasmus Sandin out of the lineup. Um, because you obviously would like to have multiple injury spares. Even just having Justin Hall as your only press box guy is not great. You know, it's not ideal. If you have a forward go down, then, again, you have Justin Hall maybe stepping in uh, as a sort of pseudo-forward, or more likely you play 11 forward, 7 defense. But it's a testament to how good Sandine has been that we're even contemplating risking this roster. But we are very squeezed. And then the only way out other than that is a trade. And we've already kind of talked about how difficult that is. Unless we do trade Cody CC to somebody. Which doesn't seem to be on the radar right now. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just it's going to be challenging. And the timing of it is also a little bit awkward. In that Dermot is expected back. 
um, according to Mike Babcock, after twelve, after fourteen games, precisely. <laughs> it's an exact. It's a fourteen gamer. You know, you know how it is. Those those, those old As annoying fourteen game injuries. Um, yeah. So, at, I mean, at that point, um, if Sandine plays every single game, then his ELC would already like not slide. He has to play uh, nine or fewer in order for that to to happen. But then if you send him down, it's kind of like a waste of burning his ELC year. You keep him under the RFA threshold. So uh, if he plays less than 40 games, then this year does not count towards a year of UFA status, which is exactly what the Leafs did with Nylander in 15-16. He played 22 games, I believe. So enough to burn a year of his ELC, not enough to count for a year of service towards UFA eligibility. But there's a difference between doing that kind of at the end of the of a lost year and playing Sandine 14 games than maybe sending him to the minors for the rest of the year. It, it, it feels like a bit of a waste in that sense, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we were discussing this with Katya, and I think what we sort of came to agree upon, or, or at least we all felt this was somewhat reasonable, is that Sandine either plays 82 games or less than 40. And by less than 40, we mean an amount close to 40, but not 40. Exactly. Um, it's possible the Leafs are, you know, we've been t- going on and on about the ELC slide thing, which does matter. But I actually was thinking the same thing back when Nylander was coming up in the, the tank year. And the Leafs didn't seem at all concerned with the ELC slide, but they never let him get close to 40 in, the, in that case for the accrued season. So it'll be interesting. I have to admit, I still find myself thinking if Sandine is really good, they're going to keep him up just because there's a certain amount of, one, you'd like to play the best possible team. And two, when a player earns it, you give it to them. They have to mm-hmm. clearly earn it, as he's done in the preseason, and so we'll see if he can do that when the games start getting serious. But I, I certainly think that that's possible. And, you know, if he is so good that the Leafs are like, you know what, okay, uh, let's give him the accrued season. He's he's undeniable. Then that's actually quite a good sign for this team, I think. So, yeah, it, it, it just as you said, it does get super tricky with maintaining the roster after he's up, unless there is a trade, right? Because you can't even have Marinson as your seventh defenseman at that point. You need to have basically any spare you have with Sandine on the roster is either Freddie Gauthier or Justin Hall. Mm-hmm. There are no other so. options. Yeah, we should, you know, indicate what exactly is the deal here. Keep in mind that Rasmus Sandin, his ELC salary is $894,000. And so if you replace him with someone like, say, Justin Hall, I guess, who's making six seventy-five, that frees up a lot of money and it allows you to have kind of whoever you like as your spare among the, the bargain bin players. So it is, uh, it's a bit dicey here i'm not gonna lie in terms of the salary implications and i'm certainly glad that we have put him in the front office to manage these things because they're a bit headache inducing i think the leafs when they signed mitch marner to that deal resigned themselves to saying okay we can operate with a limited number or even zero spares and they may also be thinking look maybe by the time zach hyman and travis Dermott come back injuries happen we may have someone else on ltir and so the situation yeah. may develop and there's there's maybe a certain amount of like let's not borrow tomorrow's trouble today uh if it turns out we have ltir space again there then we'll address that when we come to it so there's a lot in flux there yeah and i mean the leafs are kind of in the situation where 
if anyone gets injured, they kind of have to hope it's they can put them on LTIR because with regular IR, you don't get any salary really if you just that player does not count to your to the roster limit, right? That doesn't really help the Leafs. Um, the roster limit isn't going to be the issue. The salary cap is. So if I don't know William Nylander gets a hangnail and can't play, they have to put him on LTIR, basically. Right. It does um, feel. It feels a lot like. Unless we're talking about like the the top top end players, it'll be like either you're missing one game, or you're missing ten games. It'll be like I, w- I won't expect that like Kasperi Kapanen or something is going to have like a five game injury, you know, because the incentive will be to LTIR him, rather than to play a couple weeks with, uh, a limited roster. So, it will be interesting yeah. if we see some of those cap gymnastics. I am very confident the league is not going to challenge us on an IR versus LTIR determination there. So I don't know off the top of my head. Is there like an, a certain amount of time you have to be on LTIR? in order for it to qualify as that? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's 10 games and or 30 days, but don't yeah. quote me on that off the top of my head. Um, okay, yeah, so it, it's not like you can't put him on LTIR and then activate him like a day later, right? So No, yeah, it, uh, it, you it's can going retro to be it tricky. a little bit, but you can't retro it through a game that he actually did play. So Yeah, yeah. so the Leafs are yeah in this spot where it is very, very tenuous, and th- I think they're more susceptible to injury risk than people are kind of mentioning right now simply because it might force them depending on who the injury is to it might force them to run a um roster that is that is quite suboptimal um now the thing is if a player making a reasonable amount of money and by that i mean anyone above zach hyman level so you know which which is most of the leafs forwards uh, at least most of the Leafs important forwards, Th- then the salary cap space is not a big deal, but you do have to put them on LTIR and you might be missing them for more time than you otherwise would have. So it's, it gets really, really tricky. <laughs> um, and that's the cost of many things, but it's particularly easy and satisfying to point the finger to the Mitch Marner contract because that's so out of whack with everything else. Yeah, I mean, that's brutal. But, like, it is also worth saying, if we'd even gotten Mitch Marner for, like, 10.7... Oh, yeah, this is not, is not like, nearly a big as big a deal. Yeah, but, like, if, you, if we'd even just shaved a little bit off there, we would have flexibility with our spares, you know? We could seriously be talking about uh, Igor Korshkov as a fourth-line player, which, you know, I don't know if he would be making it for sure, but he'd be in the conversation. He's been, I would say, about as impressive as several of those guys. And, you know, it would be fun. It, it has hurt us, like, even down to the dollars and cents. It has actually limited our flexibility. And, you know, and we've talked about the Marner thing, but pretty much all the rest of the deals have been trickling in. Uh, now, at this point, all the RFAs are getting wrapped up. And, like, it's very clear Mitch Marner is not in the same proportion in terms of salary as any of the other players. He's making more than all of them. So, too bad. But um, the upside is that we do have a very good team. And a team that's been fun to watch so far. So that's a positive. Yeah, and I mean, for for what it's worth, um, Mitch Marner has looked quite good in this preseason after his first game. Um, yes, yeah, and that, that line. Funny. Yeah, that yeah. line has looked excellent. Um, so they... They are still going to be an elite line, and 
yes, we're probably paying Mitch Marner too much money, but we're getting what I think is pretty comfortably a top 10 line, possibly a top 5 line out of it. And hopefully the Matthews, Nylander, Janssen line can follow up with similar results. And, you know, that's a really tough proposition for any opposing team to match up against. Yeah. And so, you know, we are clearly now in the, we have our big two lines. We're not running our big three lines anymore. Uh, I think the, you know, the Kerfoot line is certainly going to produce less than Kadri and friends did. Um, so I'm hoping we lean harder on the Matthews and Tavares lines. And I'm hoping we get that additional value from our defense, which does look to me a lot better than last year. So, yep, I, I uh, guess that's my big takeaway. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, look, it's stupid to become optimistic because of preseason, and yet I'm doing it anyways because the Leafs have looked really, really <laughs> nice in preseason. And I know, it, I know, intellectually, it doesn't matter, but my like stupid brain is still like, hey, we don't, we we look pretty good. Can, can, can I, we do have a really strong team, you know? Dom Lachishan's excellent previews at the Athletic had the Leafs as um, the second best team in the league, although basically tied with Boston for third. Unfortunately, the three best teams in the league, according to his model, are Tampa, us, and Boston. We all play in the yeah. same division. So and we have like an annoying. excellent chance of playing Boston, so that's fun. <laughs> I think according to, according to Dom's model, before a single game has been played, the Leafs have a 30% chance to play Boston. And like yeah, the next highest pairing crazy. in the first round between two teams is like 9%. Yeah, because so much of this should be like kind of in flux, but his model looks at the Atlantic and they were like, this is going to be Tampa and then some combination of Boston, Toronto, 2-3. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can't blame his model for churning out that result. That seems sadly plausible. So, yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but this is a season to be optimistic. I'm, I'm happy with what the Leafs have done, I think. Or I'm not happy with what the Leafs have done. I'm happy with the roster. I'm certainly not happy with, with, the, with what the Leafs did on the Marner deal. But, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let bygones be bygones on that front. And, um, yeah, we should have a really fun team to watch. And hopefully, hopefully this season is a bit more fun to watch than last season. Um, in that last season, it seems like there was always, like, fighting about, like, first off, we had the Nylander thing for the first two months, and then the team started doing poorly once he came back, probably because he infected them with his Swedishness. Um, <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Damn Swedes. What have, what have they ever won? <laughs> name even one good Swedish hockey player. Okay, well, name yeah. 10. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they've all been good. Anyway, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think that, that it's been fun. And I guess if you want to phrase it in the most optimistic way, you would say playing bad teams in preseason, you should totally outclass them if you're a serious contender. And the Leafs pretty much did. Like, they never came close to losing a game this week, in my opinion, except for that one... Uh, <laughs> that's a misstatement. They went to a shootout with their AHL team against Detroit on Friday. But, like, when the NHL roster played both times, they were head and shoulders above the competition. So that's been positive. Yeah, and, I mean, I know we discussed... Um the other teams of the Atlantic, but we just need to give a shout out to Detroit because man, that team is bad. Like, like that was their They're NHL awful. team last night, and it's it's like it's Dylan Larkin, Anthony Mantha, and then like fifteen guys who suck. It's very poor, and the defense is just ghastly. Like, I've just been pretty firm in my like mental estimation, being like, okay, Ottawa is the worst team in the NHL, and seeing Detroit last night, I was like, or are they? 
You know? Yeah. <laughs> the it's, amount of it's times, definitely those two teams, but yeah. The amount Sorry. of times a Leaf player just kind of skated fa- faster than a Detroit Red Wings defenseman <laughs> and just like went past them for like an odd man rush or a breakaway <laughs> was like truly astounding. Where it's just, like a Leaf player would just pick up the puck and then they wouldn't do anything special. They would just skate very quickly. And the Detroit guy, it's like me when I'm playing Beardick. It's like, okay, well, I'm gone. He decided to skate fast. I'm out of this play. <laughs> I hate it when he does that. That's all Skating, awful. my only yeah. weakness. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, I, I mean, that was that was really funny. It's, it's going to be, obviously, less funny when we play Ottawa opening night and they somehow beat us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what's coming. We're going to outshoot them like 50 to 25, and Craig Anderson will shut us out. But, um, yeah, the team has looked good. And certainly as they round into form, you can only hope they look better. So, yeah, it's good. Awesome. So, yeah, I think that, that pretty much wraps it up uh, from us for this for this episode. Was there anything else you wanted to mention quickly before we signed off? No, uh, we are using... <laughs> I say this like half the weeks in the regular season. I haven't written anything in a while. I should do that again soon. So I will write something. Uh, we don't know what it is yet. But yeah, um, you should, you know, go to PenchmanPuppets.com for all your Leafs content. We have a, a great stable of writers that um, are doing all sorts of fun Leafs content. And, you know, as the regular season comes up, we'll have previews, recaps, all your daily Leafs stuff, along with our usual features and analysis. Um, so definitely check us out. You can also follow me and Fulman on Twitter uh, at RV and AT Thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week.